0: Emily Peck here with What Next TBD, closing out 2023. It's been a wild year, folks, especially for tech. We saw AI finally break through to the mainstream, crypto star, or former star, Sam Bankman-Fried was put on trial and convicted, and I mean, so much Elon Musk drama. But now it's the holidays, and TBD is taking a break from the news to look back at the year. We'll return with new episodes in January. And in the meantime, here's one of our favorite episodes from 2023. We hope you enjoy. Last year marked a grim milestone in the US. A report in June from the Governor's Highway Safety Association found that 2022 was the deadliest year for pedestrians in more than four decades. The US is a global outlier here. In comparable developed nations, the number of pedestrians killed by vehicles has fallen in recent years. What's happening here has a lot to do with Americans' love for big, big SUVs and trucks, but there's more to the story. Our roads, the design of our cities, and the powerful auto industry all play a role. In July, journalist Jesse Singer told us why when it comes to pedestrian deaths, there are
1: no accidents. If you were to draw a graph of pedestrian deaths in America, you'd see a line that began to dip slowly in the late 1970s. That line would trend downward at a steady pace until roughly 10 years ago. And then it would go the other way, telling a story about pedestrians and how they died.
2: Those fatalities fell for about 40 years and rose for the last 10.
1: That's Jesse Singer, a journalist and the author of the book, There Are No Accidents. And what happened in that last decade? What happened in the last decade
2: is a few things. In general,
1: pedestrians die because
2: they're exposed to dangerous conditions, namely two dangerous conditions, wide, fast streets with a lot of traffic that are unsafe for walking, but where people need to walk nonetheless, and the growing size of vehicles. Where people are driving SUVs and pickup trucks, fewer are driving sedans, and those vehicles are growing every year in weight and footprint picture, though, it's important to note, pedestrian fatalities have been rising a decade, but roads haven't changed that much in that time. Two things have. The vehicles are getting bigger, and we're more likely to live in those places with the most dangerous roads.
1: In 2022, pedestrian deaths hit a 40-year high, 7,508 people. Jessie's work is all about why. She looks at the size of cars, the suburbanization of poverty, and the environmental factors that are creating this crisis. But she also looks at our mentality, the way we see these deaths as tragic individual stories, not part of something larger. I think that's at the core of the problem. We instead think of these as accidents, problems of
2: human error. We think of jaywalkers or distracted drivers, nuts behind the wheel. We ask, who did what wrong? And however comforting that is, you know, finding a person to blame makes us feel better. It lets us say, oh, well, I wouldn't have made those decisions in that situation. It's a false narrative that is driving a crisis because the vast majority of people killed by cars are not killed because of their behaviors, but on the same types of streets and by the same types of vehicles. So you're much more likely to be killed by an SUV in a truck than a sedan. And you're much more likely to be killed on a wide, fast road that's straight and has limited crosswalks and poor lighting. Essentially roads designed like highways, but that are still full of low speed life, like homes and bus stops and businesses. And so essentially the danger is designed into the auto market and into the roads. But we're talking about it like it's these one off blips.
1: Today on the show, Jesse says we can prevent this, but we have to make some changes on our roads and in how we think. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Jessie didn't start out as someone who was always thinking about pedestrian death and road safety. Her expertise was born from deep personal loss. So in 2006, my
2: best friend, a New York City high school math teacher named Eric Ng, um, was killed while riding his bike on a separated biking and walking path that runs along the west side of Manhattan. He was killed by a driver who mistakenly turned and entered the path. That driver was also drunk and speeding, and he went to prison. And for a long time, that was the end of the story. 11 years, that was the end of the story. And what happened 11 years later was that a different man rented a truck, and he followed the same route as my best friend's killer, except this driver intentionally turned onto the path. Bodies and mangled bicycles strewn across this New York City sidewalk today. At least eight people dead and more than a dozen injured after this truck sped down a popular bike path just after 3 p.m. And I remember being so shocked and devastated that the exact same thing had happened again. You know, the same route, the same location, the same mechanism of harm. But it was an entirely different story. And it pushed me to look deeper into my best friend's death. And I, I found that other people had been killed there before and after on the same path by drivers doing the same thing. Now, every time, the driver was different. Some was distracted, some were lost, some were drunk. But every time the story told was, it was an accident. And so no problems were solved. And the truth was that drivers ended up on this path prior to the terror attack because it looked like the adjacent road. It had a double yellow line running down the middle like every road in America. There's nothing was preventing a full-size car truck from turning right onto it. And it stayed that way until a man with murderous intentions took advantage. And so after the terror attack, after this intentional attack, the city and state got together and they made the harm impossible. They like barricaded every entrance so you could take a bike down the path, you could walk down the path, but you couldn't drive a car down it anymore. And for me, it was this realization that looking at these as accidents was a sort of like wish fulfillment of willful ignorance uh, in the face of pretty preventable harm. And I think the lessons of my best friend's death tell us a lot about the pedestrian safety crisis. Because... Everyone made it out to be a problem of human error, that the guy who killed him was a bad person who made bad decisions. And that was why my best friend died. But all these other people would die there and a man would commit mass murder there because the conditions were ripe and dangerous. The bike path looked like a road. You could drive right onto it. And those conditions were never corrected
1: because we decided the problem was human error and considered it solved when someone went to jail. In the time since your friend's death, what has happened for pedestrian safety in the U.S.? That is a great question. Uh, Very little. Is that too devastating
2: of an answer? No. I mean, the truth is that we have seen um, things only get much worse. Um, The size of automobiles has grown much, much larger in that time. Those vehicles have gotten heavier. They are more likely to be these pickup trucks and SUVs where their visibility is absolutely terrible. Um, And we've seen a total lack of interest from the federal government in addressing the problem in actually looking at why people are buying these big vehicles,
1: why people are dying more, um, and actually taking on the problem as a regulator. I, I want to talk about the car part of this because, you know, I was actually having a conversation with someone about this and they expressed a little bit of incredulity about this, that like if you got hit by a Civic doing 40, it is also going to be terrible. So it is being hit by an F-150 that much worse? And I I guess why?
2: Absolutely. It's much, much worse. And and so there's a few things going on here. One of the reasons is that the the number one factor that affects whether or not a pedestrian survives a crash is the weight of the vehicle that impacts them. It's simply a matter of physics, you know, the force that hits you. But there's a few other things going on. With these SUVs and trucks, um, they have very high front ends um, so that when you're struck, the point of impact. Um, And you can imagine a sedan or a tall truck hitting you. And I would recommend people go out in the street and stand next to them to really see what we're talking about here. Um, A vehicle with a high front end is going to hit you in the head and the chest, your most fragile and important parts. And because the end is high, you're not going to end up on top of the vehicle like you would in a sedan. You're not going to be thrown onto the hood, which relatively is a safer place you're going to be thrown underneath the vehicle you're going to be knocked under the vehicle because the vehicle's pretty much as tall as you are Mm. and so that combined with the fact that the visibility afforded to drivers in these vehicles is extremely limited is exacerbating the rate of traffic fatalities for pedestrians um, and including a a horrible
1: new type of fatality that we really never
2: had to talk about before what's being known as a front over oh
1: god I I just, I know where you're going to say. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Say it.
2: I don't know. I have a a little baby at home and you get like the chills just even talking about the horror of it. But uh, people are running over their own children in their driveways because the fronts of their cars are so tall, they cannot see their child sitting 10
1: feet in front of the car playing there. One thing the data shows is that this is a particularly American problem. In other wealthy places like Europe and Japan, pedestrian fatalities have fallen dramatically. Even in Canada, which is also big and also relies on cars, the likelihood of dying in a crash is much lower than it is here.
2: It is not just that we have the biggest cars. Um, there are a few things going on here. Um, one, we prize enforcement as a solution to traffic safety um, compared to other countries, and it is ineffective. Um, We have the biggest cars. Um, We also have the most dangerous streets. Um, And our regulatory agencies are at best defanged and defunded by comparison. Um, So if you go to like Europe and Japan, where pedestrian fatalities are in decline the whole time ours have been rising. You see narrow roads, you see low speed limits, you see expansive public transit, so fewer people need to drive. Um, you see vehicles that are tested and rated for pedestrian safety. Um, there are high fuel taxes and high fuel economy standards, so driving a big car is unaffordable, so they're simply not made and not sold. And they're rolling out effective autonomous technology like Intelligent Speed Assist,
1: which automatically governs vehicle speeds to the road limit. How, how do electric vehicles fit into this picture? Electric
2: vehicles are currently and are expected to dramatically exacerbate the problem because electric vehicles are even bigger and even heavier than the heaviest vehicles on the road now because their wow. batteries weigh so much.
1: I mean, that's it's sort of counterintuitive. I think that, you know, people, if if they are in the market for an EV, might be thinking like, I am buying a virtuous car, but not from this standpoint.
2: Uh, not from this standpoint. And actually, that, that gets at a really uh key part of the problem, which is that our safety ratings for vehicles have nothing to do with safety. And people are totally uninformed as consumers. And this is really where you get the failure of our regulators of the National Traffic Highway Traffic Safety Administration to educate people. You know, they're in the process of updating NCAP, which is the new car assessment program, which is how your car might get that five-star safety rating you hear about in car commercials. Yeah. And so, unlike in Europe and Japan, U.S. NCAP never assessed cars for the safety of people outside the vehicle. So you can drive a tank that will kill any pedestrian it encounters and get a five-star safety rating, because whether or not it's safe or unsafe if you strike a pedestrian is totally out of the question. And so, NHTSA launched an NCAP update a few years back, and the original thing they published had nothing about pedestrians. People. People, people threw a fit and they were flooded with something like 16,000 comments calling for the inclusion of pedestrian um, and bicyclist safety testing for these vehicles. And they did add it, but instead of making it a regulatory framework, you know, like it is in these other countries, they made it voluntary. So mm. um, there's voluntary pedestrian safety testing that will be self-reported by the auto industry. It's a pass-fail test and it doesn't impact the vehicle safety rating. So It's not going to do anything. Um, And it's going to keep consumers in the dark, Um, which, you know, really gets at what you're pointing at, you know, like they're trying to buy, you know, if they're trying to buy a virtuous vehicle, there's no way for them to even have that information.
1: Right. And I think, I mean, when you talk about large cars, there is, I think, a feeling of safety, whether or not that is accurate, that is conveyed by having sort of the big boxy thing with space around you—a feeling of safety for the driver. In any event,
2: this is what's what's it's what's been really hard here because I think you know automakers are offering fewer sedans um, and more SUVs and pickup trucks because they can charge more for SUVs and pickup trucks. But because those SUVs and pickup trucks are so large today. Selling one sells more of them in this extremely dark, self-fulfilling prophecy. People are buying giant vehicles because they feel safer next to other giant vehicles. And if the next guy on the highway is in a tank, you're going to want to put your family in a tank too. And that's entirely reasonable as a decision. You can Mm -hmm. understand why people make those decisions at least if they were individuals and our roads were a vacuum. But in reality, our roads are public spaces and we've got drivers in this arms race. And the pedestrians, along with cyclists and anyone who can't afford a giant new car,
1: we're all collateral damage. When we come back, why this is also a story about class and race. It's no secret that Americans love big cars. The top three sellers last year were all pickups. The Ford F-Series, the Chevy Silverado, and the Dodge Ram. Thanks to government tax incentives from the 60s and 70s, and a little regulatory jujitsu that can classify SUVs as light trucks, automakers earn higher profit margins on trucks compared to cars.
2: Automakers can charge more money for bigger cars. Um, SUVs and pickup trucks have a higher price point. um, And so they're extremely beneficial to the automakers. And then we've gotten in this situation where if some people are buying them, then it's terrifying to be on the road if you're not in. And, you know, there's a long history of this, of automakers showing zero concern for safety in the name of selling more cars. That's actually why we have an auto regulator. Like NHTSA was created because
1: Ralph Nader exposed how automakers knew their vehicles were dangerous for stylish reasons. Nader's 1965 book, Unsafe at Any Speed, was a runaway hit. It critiqued U.S. automakers and a number of American cars, most famously the Chevy Corvair, which, coincidentally, was the car my mother drove at the time. The book terrified her, and she got rid of the car. What aggravates the problem is that the rear wheels of the Corvair begin to tuck under. And as they tuck under, the angle of tuck under is called camber. And as they tuck under, it can go from three or four degrees camber to 11 degrees camber almost in an instant. And when that happens, nobody can control the Corvair.
2: Automakers were essentially making intentionally dangerous vehicles and were actively fighting efforts to make them safer. And that was what led to the creation of the auto regulator. And today, though, NHTSA is captured toothless and doing nothing about the problem. And I I think, you know, President Biden and DOT Secretary Buttigieg are relying on the idea that we see the rise in pedestrian deaths as just accidents caused by, you know, unintentional and unfortunate behavior rather than the result of deliberate plans for profit and uh, regulatory negligence.
1: You you really think that they're thinking Americans are just kind of complacent and going to miss that? That's that's loaded. I
2: mean, we're 10 years in. The numbers have been rising for 10 years straight, and there is no plan to regulate the size of automobiles. There's even an acknowledgement from the USDOT that bigger cars are causing the problem. I just think there's no appetite for pushing the buttons required um, that regulation requires.
1: Let's talk about the the other side of this, the, the infrastructure and urban design part of it, because I live in Brooklyn. Um, There have been some scary fatalities near where I live. I think about this a lot when I'm taking my toddler, you know, across Flatbush Avenue. But reading your work, where I live is not the most dangerous place. What are the attributes of of a city or a suburb or an exurb that make it particularly dangerous for pedestrians?
2: Um, The attributes of a given street that is especially dangerous for pedestrians, it's straight, it's wide, it moves at a high rate of speed, and it is full of opportunities for conflict. So rather than like a highway that has no one alongside it, we're talking about roads that are full of businesses and driveways and intersections, but are still designed and moving like highways. And that's not all. It's a road that looks like that, that is located in a place that isn't pedestrian dense like Brooklyn, um, that's where drivers are used to seeing people and yielding to people, but where the pedestrian is a rarity. Um, and often that is driven by poverty, um, driven by that you live in a place that's the only place you can afford to live, where cars are the norm and public transit's not, but you still need to walk to your bus stop. And that's where we see these roads designed with a crosswalk that is 10 minutes away from the bus stop and 10 minutes away from the apartment building. Mm. So you're struck with this decision. Do I walk for 20 minutes to get to the bus or do I run across the road? Now, if you die on that street, running across the road to catch the bus, even though there's a crosswalk only, you know, full 10 minutes away, you'll be blamed for your death. You were jaywalking. But really, the design of that road um, and the conditions that required you to live in that place and near that road, that poverty, directly led to your death. But rarely do we look at these individual deaths from that systemic lens and from the lens of what we put people up against when they don't have a car in this country, when they're forced to walk in this country.
1: I mean, you were describing a story of class and race just seen through the prism of cars. Absolutely. And the story of class and race is told statistically, too. Um, Pedestrian deaths are dominated
2: in Black indigenous communities um, and in low-income communities, especially in the southern
1: United States. Arguably the most dangerous place to be a pedestrian is on a stretch of U.S. 19 in Pasco and Pinellas counties in Florida. It has all the things Jesse talks about—high speed limit, big cars, and few sidewalks.
2: Isabel, U.S. 19 is so dangerous some drivers know it as Death Valley. ...of a deadly pedestrian crash. It happened just after 3 o'clock this morning along U.S. 19 north of
0: Curlew Road. People are seriously hurt and two more have minor injuries after a crash in Clearwater today. FHP says it happened at the intersection of U.S. 19 and Bel Air
2: Road. It is shocking, and it is so pervasive in places like Florida, where you know there is widespread poverty. There's a lot of economic difference, and there isn't a safe opportunity to cross the street, to get to the bus, to go to the store if you don't have the protection of a car. And I think another thing to talk about here with these SUVs and these trucks is how even if you do own a car. Poverty might play into your death because if you're, you know, struck in an older sedan by a giant SUV, you're much more likely to die in that traffic crash as
1: well. Hmm. So if you are listening to this and thinking, oh, my God, this is terrifying. What can you do? Like, what are your options? There are a lot of options that, you know, we could hope to see from the federal
2: government. I mean, starting with NHTSA hinging their NCAP star safety ratings on pedestrian safety, there's so much technology they could be tapping and regulating on American automakers that they're not. Like a intelligent speed assist that limits the vehicle speed to the speed of a roadway, um, limits on vehicle weight and size, requiring vehicle designs with high visibility for drivers. But I'm the first to admit that regulation is good because it benefits everyone, but regulation is also slow. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the meantime, there's a ton that municipalities can be doing. And, and some are. New York is. New York is, actually. So one thing I would talk about is you could create tiered vehicle registration taxes that put a heavy price on the most deadly vehicles. Um, it's notable that those vehicles also cause the most wear and tear on the roads. So asking those drivers that are putting us all a little more at risk to pay significantly more would start to disincentivize the ownership of those big vehicles. Now there's a law in Washington DC that already does this and one was just proposed in New York City. But on the smaller level, you can expand public transit locally. You can narrow roads and build smaller ones. And you can daylight intersections. That's when you remove all of the parking spaces immediately adjacent to an intersection so that a driver at a stop sign or a stop line has much more visibility of anyone who's crossing. And that last one is what Hoboken, New Jersey did. Yeah, They daylight every intersection in the city. And it's one of the first U.S. cities to reach zero traffic deaths.
1: You had an argument that I find really interesting, um, which was basically design it as if you're designing for drunk drivers. What do you mean by that?
2: When we design roads, hell, when we design any part of our built environment as though the user is drunk, then we are designing in a way that protects us all. Now, now we rightfully um, shame drunk driving, but is a drunk driver that different than a driver who is sleepy or a driver who is distracted by their kid in the backseat? You know, these other less less shameful tropes, but if we design the roads for drunk drivers, then we make them safe for everyone. And I think we don't like to think like that. And, you know, I say this as someone whose best friend was killed by a drunk driver. You know, we want we want the, the drunk driver to be bad. We want the problem to be the drunk driver. But the problem isn't the drunk driver. The problem is the road system. The problem is the design of our cars. And if we make all those things foolproof, truly foolproof, then We're going to save all of those lives, the the lives we want to condemn because they're drunk and the lives that are totally, you know, um, pristine morally. If we design the roads for drunk drivers, then we make space for everyone to make mistakes rather than designing our roads for perfect people and punishing and scolding whoever doesn't get it right. And really, that's how much of our road
1: system is designed now. It's designed for perfect people with a big sign, you know, that says, don't, don't screw up. I, I mean, it, I hear you and that sounds absolutely, you know, intelligent and it makes a ton of sense. But we've also just come through a, a real life experiment of three years where collective action and collective decision making um, did not go so well. Do you have a lot of hope that Americans can think in that way, in that looking out for one another way? Well, actually,
2: I don't care if Americans in general think that way. I just want the government to think that way. (sighs) You know, I I mean, I don't I think that actually up until now, we've made traffic safety this collective action. You know, um, New York City recently spent something like four million dollars putting up billboards that say don't speed. I mean, come on. What is that going to do? We don't need to encourage people to do the right thing. We need to force their hand. The thing about a narrow road, it's not a a moral standard. A narrow road isn't a moral standard. It doesn't make a driver say like, oh, there might be children living here. Maybe I should drive safer. No, that driver slows down because they themselves feel unsafe driving faster on a narrow road. And that's a perfectly fine way to get the job done. And that's why regulation is such an important factor because right now, if you want automatic emergency braking in your car and you're rich, you can buy it. But if you're poor and you speed, if you make the same bad decision as that other driver who's paid for the fancy technology, you're going to die and they're not. And so the regulation allows us to make safety universal rather than individual. It's the difference between a mask mandate and a mask suggestion.
1: You s- sound very skeptical of, of both Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg. And and yet I'm also sitting here thinking like well wait a minute their constituents are dying here like where where is the, the DOT in all of this? The DOT runs NHTSA, and we
2: have seen nothing but NHTSA refusing to address the growing size and weight of vehicles,
1: even while they admit it's a problem. Because the automakers are so powerful as a as a political constituency. I think it's partially that automakers are very
2: powerful as a political constituency. And I think it is also the fact that Democrats have really fallen for and absorbed the anti-regulatory rhetoric that Ronald Reagan set forth, and have, you know, kind of made it part of their own. And we just are failing to see them act despite the numbers looking horrendous. There's one bill I wanted to call out, um, which is that things have gotten so bad with vehicle weight that auto haulers, you know, those trucks that carry cars, are forced to leave slots open on their trucks because there's a federally mandated weight limit for auto haulers. But currently, automakers are pushing a bill before Congress to try and raise those limits so that they can put even more weight on these auto haulers, putting even more weight on the road. And I suspect it'll pass.
1: The title of your book, There Are No Accidents, suggests that this state of affairs is a choice or, or the result of a series of choices that we keep making. And, and I wonder why you think that keeps happening.
2: I think it's unfair to say that it's a choice we're making. Mm-hmm. People die by accident, and I'm putting that in scare quotes, in this country because of infrastructure and policy decisions that are often far out of our individual control. But it's also true that thinking of these so-called accidents as individual problems caused by human error is really comforting to us. And that's at the core of our failure to reach systemic change.
1: It's like asking if somebody smoked when they get a cancer diagnosis. It's exactly
2: like that. And the reason we do that, the reason we say, did you smoke when they get a cancer diagnosis, is because it's terrifying us to hear about cancer. And it's a way to say, oh, oh, they smoked. Oh, I don't, I'm safe. It's a way to separate ourselves from pain and tragedy. That's at the core of all victim blaming. And victim blaming is at the core of all of the inaction here. Now, I do think that automakers and the federal government are leaning into and taking advantage of our tendency to find individual causes to these problems um, and letting that guide their inaction. The truth is that until we overcome that personal idea that I feel better, if I can just blame this on something small and individual, then we're not going to overcome the problem. We've really seen this a ton in the pedestrian fatality crisis, where, you know, twice a year when the new numbers come out, we get a series of articles that point to all these red herrings to explain the problem. You know, some are blaming the uptick on angry drivers and pent up frustrations from COVID 19, or others are blaming the rise of smartphones. And these are comforting explanations because they mean the problem is not huge and overwhelming and built into the system, but instead it's just a few bad Apple drivers. It's just a few jerks out there who we can point the finger at and then we can all feel better and move on. But, you know, Europe and Japan are proof that it's all bunk. They've got COVID, they've got smartphones, you know, we're the only ones with a crisis. And so it's this same old story. We're blaming individual human error to pretend that we don't need systemic change and it's killing us in untold numbers. And this really is an old story. You know, the terms like the jaywalker and the nut behind the wheel were first pushed through into the common discourse by automakers as anger started to rise over the fact that All of a sudden, there were lots of cars in cities and they were killing a ton of pedestrians. I mean, it's an ancient story in terms of our automobiles. And that story hugely benefits the automakers. The only time we've ever been able to reduce traffic fatalities is through regulation. Um, you know. And those regulations only arrived when we really had such clear-cut evidence that the thing that was killing us was this machine. When NHTSA first came about, it was because the automobile was killing people inside cars. It was killing the driver. It was killing the passenger. And there wasn't a lot of consideration given to pedestrians. And now we've built these cars that are pristinely safe for the people inside. They're tanks that protect everyone inside a whole lot. And they're killing massive numbers of people who are outside those cars.
1: Jesse Singer, thank you for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Jesse Singer is a journalist and the author of There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. It's the best way to support us, and you get all your lovely Slate podcasts ad-free. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.